just if I can echo Pat and uh, Lydia's welcome. I'm Tim. I'm the vicar here, or the pastor here, um, and it's really good to be with you tonight. Really good to see you. We are working our way through Jesus' teaching, known as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, because he went up on a mountain and he delivered some teaching to his disciples and others who were listening in, and we're working through that. We're struck, uh, what is it, 2,000 years on, by just how much Jesus' teaching to them there then seems to be speaking to us here now. He's, uh, he's touching the heart of people. We're in um, page 917, and then I'm also going to just flick over, that's Matthew chapter 5, and then I'm going to flick over and read um, a kind of corresponding piece from Matthew chapter 19. Just while you're finding that, while you do, just a little postscript on the Mission Sunday, next Sunday, because we want everyone to have an opportunity to engage with Pablo, our speaker, there's going to be a tea for everyone. I know we're doing a lot of teas at the moment, but there's going to be a tea on Sunday at three o'clock. So why don't you aim to come to church early instead of aiming for the five, come for three, and we're going to be across in the mission hall, which is the big sort of church-like building, church-shaped building across the way there, three o'clock, uh, tea and cake, and an opportunity to, to hear and engage with Pablo before he speaks to us here at, at five. Difficult to engage with him, ask your questions, find out more about what IJM do, so uh, when he's speaking here, but uh, interaction, Q&A, uh, and you can actually get to meet him, find out more personally at three o'clock across in the hall next Sunday. Let me read uh, God's word to us. Matthew chapter 5 and uh, verse 31, as we continue here under the heading divorce, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Just flick over to uh, chapter 19, I'm going to read from verse 3. Some, page 933, chapter 19, verse 3. Some of the Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it's not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Let's stop there. Let's pray. Lord, we simply ask that you would take these words. They kind of slap us. They kind of punch us around the face. They kind of hit us in the gut. They seem harsh. They seem unloving. So, Lord, we ask your spirit, help us to get underneath the skin of the words, as it were. What is Jesus saying? How is he teaching us today? How can we feed on your word today? Lord, we need you. We need your food. We need your guidance. We need your direction. So in these next few minutes, help us, please, to focus on you. 
For your name's sake, amen. Amen. Uh, do you, when you were a little kid, do, and I don't know what the kind of how it went at mealtime, supper time, whatever, um, and mum and dad or whoever's at home, and you kind of had a, a plate, you know, a plate of food, and um, you know when it was kind of your favourite, I don't know whether mum or dad or whoever it was, bigger brother, sister, kind of cooked something, you, oh yeah, you just loved it. And you, you just couldn't eat enough of it, just spoon it all down until you literally just a bloated thoughts, just, yeah, love this, love this. That was, that was great. But did you ever have a time when um, mum, dad, whoever it was, would, would serve you a meal and you kind of, you looked at it and you thought, oh, and your kind of stomach began to turn already? There was something on that plate, it was usually coloured green in my case, and you kind of knew that it stood between you and pudding, which you knew was the delights were over there. And you knew, that, well, in my house anyway, when I was a kid, the rules were that plate has got to be, you've got to get outside that plate, basically. There's no way around it. You, it's, it's, you, there we are. And so did you, you, you know, you kind of, you, so you kind of, you, you sort of fish around trying to get a little bit, and you put a little mouthful in, and you start to chew and you know that kind of thing. And did you ever get this? When, you know, when as a kid, when you're eating something that you don't really want to eat, did you find that the, the little, little mouthful that you took, it got bigger and bigger in your mouth? There was even more of it to swallow once you'd actually put it in your mouth. It seems so unfair. And you go, and you'd, oh, and you'd, just the thought of trying to get it down. Any, anyone relate to that? Okay, okay, cool. Oh, that's not alone. Well, well, I had that similar kind of feeling when I came to this passage today. I thought, oh, Jesus, no. Can't I have something nice to preach? I did last last week. It's loud enough. Can't you let me off for good behavior? Straight into divorce. Punchy little two or three verses on divorce. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You want me to stand up and... So, so can I just say I've got that kind of slight pity feeling in my stomach, that kind of, oh, this, is, this isn't going to go down. I've just got to get through this. But actually, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be obedient to it, the best of my ability. I'm determined to do it. Let's work at this together, because believe the whole of Scripture is the whole counsel of God. We can't pick and choose all the nice bits that we like to eat. So, so here's, here's some of the tough stuff from Jesus. I, I want to say, I want to caveat it. I've uh, preached this message. Uh, I've kind of maybe altered one or two applications, perhaps, for this evening. But this morning at... Uh, our 10.30 service where typically a lot of families gather uh, and I looked out and I, of, uh, that I knew of. I didn't know everyone's situation but at those that I knew, I knew there were two people who'd gone through divorce. Uh, the pain and the agony uh, and the heartache and the, and the brokenness and the despair that is wrapped around divorce. Not just for the immediate individual's concern but for wider family and friends. The, the, the dislocation and the pain. Uh, and I don't know, I, I, I know a number of you, but I don't know many of you that well. I don't know what your background is, either you personally or maybe you've come from a broken home. You've seen your parents divorce. You've seen friends' parents divorce. You, you know. You know. So, Lord, we, we, we need you to help us as we journey through this. What is Jesus saying? And actually... And I'm not trying to get off the hook, but I, I just this has been a recurring theme in our teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, when Jesus is presented with this, it, it's often about that. The illustration at the end, you know, he, he talks this illustration about the building a house. And uh, it isn't actually about the house. It's about the foundations. It's not the stuff you can see, it's the stuff underneath 
the unseen, the foundation. And uh, here, as we read, um, well, his teaching, a little bit of teaching in Matthew 5, and I'm going to mainly sit in Matthew 19, where Matthew kind of unpacks it a little bit. We see in verse 3 of chapter 19 that the Pharisees came to test him. And they're using the subject of divorce, but they're... Their, their, their heart, if you like, their attitude, their posture is to test Jesus. They're trying to catch him out, really. And the background is that there'd been quite a bit of discussion, as actually there has been in the church and culture, about, about marriage and relationships in general. In our culture, it's fascinating how the Bible speaks then, the Bible speaks today. But there was a big discussion in Jesus' day, well, just before Jesus' day, maybe a, a generation or two before, around... Um, well, what did the law mean around the whole thing of divorce? How far did the law intend to go as laid out by Moses? And there were two kind of schools of thought, one headed up by Rabbi Shammai and one headed up by Rabbi Himmel. Rabbi Shammai was the hardliner. No divorce except for sexual immorality or adultery. If one or other partner in a marriage relationship sleeps with someone else outside of that marriage relationship, that is grounds for divorce. But that and that alone was Rabbi Shammai's interpretation of the Mosaic law laid down in Deuteronomy 24. I haven't got time to go into all the... We won't look into Deuteronomy 24, but if you want to, you, you can. Rabbi Himmel said, well, hang on a second, there's a little phrase in there that uh, sexual immorality... Uh, adultery within marriage, yes. But if also, there was a little clause in there, if the wife does anything that is displeasing to the husband, then that may be grounds for divorce. And uh, as, as Pat was saying uh, at a, in an earlier talk, you know, they love to say, oh, well, let's explore this. What might that mean? I mean, what might, what might constitute displeasing? How would we define that? And uh, the, the commentators tell us that it, it extended even so far as if the wife produced a meal at supper time that was displeasing to the husband, then that was grounds to consider divorce. Again, as we noted last week, so isn't it that the law seems to wait against the women? Why wasn't it the man cooking supper? And could the wife divorce? Anyway, for another time. And so all this sort of, well, how far does it go? And, what, and uh, is it possible to get a, you, you, the, the, the interpretation was you could get a certificate of divorce. So you didn't make a, a, an obvious thing of it. But in getting a certificate of divorce, that enabled you to leave your wife. So they want to know, Jesus, where do you stand on this? Are you a, a Shammai or are you school of Himmel? Are you kind of hardliner or are you liberal on the whole thing of divorce? Where do you stand? And Jesus won't be drawn on the externals. He, he doesn't care about the soft furnishings of the house, as it were. Because you could have the most amazing house, but if it's built on sand when the storms come, as you'll see, chapter 7, it'll collapse. So let's look at the foundations, Jesus says. Verse 4. Haven't you read? That at the beginning... Let's go back to God's original intention for human flourishing. God's original intention for human relationships and specifically marriage. What I want to do just for the next few minutes, if I may, is, is to be faithful to Scripture and to uh, try and unpack what Jesus teaches about marriage. But actually, because I recognize that most of us here are not married. 
And I also recognize, too, that maybe the church has spent a little bit too much time talking about marriage as the ultimate human relationship. And I think, actually, the Bible has a lot to say about the whole of human flourishing, whether you're married or single, whatever your relational status. So I want to touch on marriage because Jesus does. But from there, seek a wider application for this evening, if, if you'll go with me on that. God's original design in the beginning Interesting, he he talks about the Creator, capital C, made them male and female and said to them, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Marriage is God's idea. So many other institutions that we are aware of that are designed for human ordering and and flourishing are our invention, our education, our educative system. I mean, it it differs around the world here. We have sort of uh, reception and nursery and uh, primary schools and secondary schools and tertiary education and tests and exams and all that kind of thing. Um, And it's arrayed as best we think to educate individuals. But we've created that. That's a human, human construct. So to our political systems, <laughs> come under a little bit of scrutiny in the last few weeks and months. But they are, that's the way we've organized our democracies or whatever the political regime and system is. It's, it's our invention. But there are two things that we, two ways of human ordering that we have not created. They were not our design. They are not our design. Family and marriage. Haven't you read, Jesus says, that in the beginning the Creator made them male and female and joined them as one, which we understand as, as marriage. Marriage is God's idea, not our idea. I love uh, taking time and I take a, a wedding service here and there's a, a I, th- I think it's a glorious introduction to the wedding service. And I quite like just to sort of take my time in, in declaring it. Uh, most people don't think they think oh we're going to the vows bit you know I promise I vow and all this but there's a bit before and there's a line in there marriage is a gift of God in creation or as the prayer book uh, puts it the ancient prayer book that marriage is instituted by God in the time of man's innocency this sort of quaint language when we didn't really know what we were doing we were still kind of in nappies as it were figuratively God has created and ordained the way in which two should become one together. Marriage is God's idea, not our idea. And so we see, and we, we saw it last week, I won't, for the sake of time, turn to it, but again, do look it up afterwards. And Jesus refers to this. I think that's why this is his thing. The, the Pharisees come with a divorce. Let's get into the law. No, no. I want to take you to Genesis 2, Jesus says. And that's where he starts. And so 2.15 Genesis 2, chapter 15, we see that the, the, the man that God has made is mandated to steward creation. It's the Garden of Eden. It's a, a figurative for the world. You are to work this to make it look so good, like a, like a, a gardener tilling away at a garden so that when it comes into full bloom, everyone goes, oh, how wonderful. Mm, smell the aroma. Look at the array of colors. How amazing. And so it is with mankind and creation. Make me look good, God says. Look after this. Steward it. Care for it. 
And then we read 2.18, as we were reminded last week, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And so Eve is fashioned. None of the animals will quite satisfy that desire, we saw it last week, in Adam to co-steward, to co-work. What is the reason that, that uh, Jesus quotes here, the writer in Genesis, for this reason? He quotes it here in the middle of verse 4. For this reason, sorry, verse 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What is the reason for two becoming one? What's the reason for marriage? What is marriage for? And Jesus is wanting to point his listeners back then and, and us now. Marriage is, is not primarily so that we can experience supreme affection. That's why God created Labrador dogs. <laughs> I mean, anyone, loads of things can express affection. Actually, I'm not really joking. Our dog is a, is a we've got a black Labrador dog. And day after day, we disappoint her. Day after day, we let her down. Day after day, we walk out the door, Joe and I and others, and, and day after day, those doughy chocolate box eyes, can I come to? No, sorry, Connie, I'm going to a meeting, whatever it is. No, you stay there, stay. You can see the ears back onto the mat. And then I come in, the key in the door. In I come. Great to see you, Master. Just, just, the, just the unconditional love and affection, day after day. I let that dog down day after day after day. Every time, unconditional love, unconditional affection, every time. There's lots of things. Our dear dog can express affection. That's not the primary purpose of marriage, although it's a wonderful part of it. Is it procreation? Is it the birds and the bees? Well, no, rats and rabbits are pretty good at that as well. It's, that's not exclusive or, or the primary purpose of marriage, although a very important part of two becoming one. No, the primary purpose of two becoming one, according to God, is for the purpose of stewarding the earth. Of, of fleshing out and living out, fulfilling God's plans and purposes for his creation. We work in cooperation with the creator in order to make the whole that the creator has made beautiful. That the whole of creation flourishes, is harmonious, is wonderful. That, that, that as we go about our work, this is a separate sermon series, work is meant to be a good thing. It was designed to be a good thing because it's so satisfying to be part of something that produces, that is fruitful, that is wonderful, that, that sings back to its creator the joy of being. That is the ultimate purpose of marriage. For this reason, what reason? The reason of having a helper, Adam, having Eve, to help him to steward the earth, to fulfill God's purposes. Marriage is not our idea to make us happy. Marriage is God's idea to make us holy. And so we're going to need to practice that. And that's really what Jesus was, you, you Pharisees, you're coming to test me and to nitpick on how can I get out of this? How can I sort of wheedle around? And, and Jesus says, you've completely missed the point. 
The whole point of the, the law is to give you something to aim at so that you can live the kind of life that makes you so marryable. Not that you're looking to get out, but that you contribute as you get in. And in a sense, the New Testament picks this up. It's interesting that um, uh, Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, and his fourth uh, kind of, the fourth result of being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5. That's a command, be filled with the Spirit. And it results in a number of, of um, well, actually in the Greek they're participles, so a number of things, praising and uh, uh, honoring and serving one another. But the, the final result of being filled with the Spirit is submitting. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we've often, because it's nearly always been preached, and, and actually in the old NIV, uh, the, the sort of subheading didn't help here. It looked like that applied exclusively to marriage. And Paul certainly applies it to marriage. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, serve your and love your wives as Christ loved the church. So there's this kind of mutual submission within marriage. But actually, I don't think that's an application and a worthy application. But I think first and foremost, as he's speaking to the whole church, just as I'm speaking to you tonight, a fruit of the Spirit is that we practice submitting to one another whether we're married or single. So that we can help one another to explode the myth that if I just hunker down and, and wait for marriage, then I will become patient and loving and kind and thoughtful. Once I'm a husband or once I'm a wife, then I'll be all the things that the Bible talks about. Then I'll exhibit Christ-like life. And I, just as someone on the other side of marriage, can I just say, uh-uh. I, need, I needed to practice all I could to be loving and patient and kind. Because that isn't naturally in me. Not because I had to be loving and patient and kind to, to a lovely wife, but because that wasn't naturally in me. Every single one of us has that element of flesh about us, the, the result of original sin that means that left to our sort of own devices, we will seek to serve self. We are left to our own devices. With the Spirit of God leaking out of us, we will, we will slowly resort to self-centered living. And marriage isn't going to suddenly change that. Jesus is, by his Spirit, living in you day by day. And you can practice what it is to live a selfless life, whatever your marital status. So that having trained yourself in thinking of others in selflessness on a daily basis, I become the perfect catch, if I can put it in cultural terms, as a husband or a wife. Not in order to become like that, but because I already am. Be filled with the Spirit, Paul says, so that you can practice submitting to one another. Practice what it is to live in God's covenant love, so that you are released, so immersed in his covenant love, you are released to express that covenant love to others. Just as God expressed his covenant love to each and every one of us, married, single, whatever our status. My song is Love Unknown. And that great line, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. In other words, when Christ hanging in agony on the cross, physical agony and spiritual agony, separated from 
like, Father, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And as he looks through the strained, bloodshot eyes and he sees the people around him, it's not as if he's going, well, I'll die for you and for you, but not for you, because you're not quite my body type. He died for everyone. Tim Keller uh, has written uh, eight ways. He's got a book called, uh, on marriage, uh, the meaning of marriage, uh, which is based on um, Tim Keller is a, a pastor in the States uh, in, in Manhattan. Uh, it's based on a series of talks he did. If I'm honest, I think the talks are so much better. He's kind of remodeled them and put them into the book. And the, for my money, the book doesn't read quite so well. But if you can get hold of the talks from the church, he's a pastor of Redeemer Church in Manhattan. Um, they're nine talks on marriage. They are the best thing that Joe and I have ever lived. Of all the sort of marriage material, and there's a lot of good stuff out there, uh, and, and wider kind of relationship material. These are outstanding. He, he gives this little example. He says the thing, and he, he, I think he angles this at guys. It could apply to guys and girls, but it, if I'm honest, speaking as a bloke, it's probably more likely to apply to the guys. He says, the thing in, guys, you, you walk into a room where there are 10 members of the opposite sex, and within two minutes, you've discounted seven of them because they're not quite tall enough or they're not quite short enough or they're not quite thin enough or not quite fat enough or they've got the wrong color hair or the wrong color eyes. or They just don't satisfy, as we were looking at last week, that immediate little flame that's always there in potential of eros, eros. And so you zone in on the three that, that titillate the flame of eros. And you discount seven. Seven people who could have become real decent friends, not necessarily in a romantic sense, just, just good friends, discounted. And who knows, God might have sown into that friendship the little flame of eros. Keller makes the point, and I think I'd speak from experience and say, I think this is true. You, you may... I don't, I don't come up here and speak just so that you can agree with everything I say. I'm, you may disagree with this. But that other love I mentioned last week, filio. Filio will often, when, when fully formed, give birth to eros. Out of friendship, actually sexual desire can be kindled and grow. But very often, the other way around isn't true. Eros won't often give birth to true filio, and certainly not agape. If, if, uh, if the way in which the grounds in which you, the basis in which you get to know someone has begun with eros, it's really hard to build filio and agape. But if it's filio and agape, self-serving, self-giving, self-sacrificial love, very often the desire can come and can grow. By the way, that's true in marriage. There are times in a marriage relationship when eros kind of isn't always most apparent. Seasons times, just uh, things going on when, when Eros seems maybe to have left the building. And you, you just, you focus on filio, you focus on agape, and guess what? Here comes Eros again. Practice self-giving friendship, self-giving love. Practice not discounting anyone just on how they look how they immediately appeal. Practice growing friendship. Practice looking out for the other. 
And that's the kind of person who, as and when, if they're called into marriage and enter into marriage, that's the kind of person who is less likely to see a marriage end in divorce because they've learned what it is to access the power of God's love, to overcome that which separates, to build in and foster and grow that which cleaves and holds together. We are the ingredients of the cake that God makes. We don't, we don't become the cake and hope that the, the ingredients are all there. I was just thinking about this um, and just this application uh, and thinking about, actually by the grace of God, uh, 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 a season that I went, to as a, uh, went through as a young Christian, I came to faith at school. Um, I was at a, a boarding school for uh, my sort of secondary education and there was a Christian union there, a couple of lads uh, in the football team. I tried to think where I might have ended up actually if it wasn't for these guys whose lives were impressive and they sort of kind of really strong-armed me to the Christian Union and I just even now when I say the word Christian Union I slightly because <laughs> uh, I just think why would I want to be seen dead in that place and I certainly thought that then I kind of I kind of fancied I was relatively cool I was in the football team I was sort of, sort of sporty sort of lad you know that allowed you to walk with a bit of a swagger like that uh, around school and you sort of you know yeah like that. So, you know, someone who sort of walks like that, you don't, you know, because the people who go to Christian Union, they sort of walk like that. And I was sort of, you know, I was kind of, you know, so it just, it just wasn't, ah. But I, I kind of, they kind of shoved me in there. And uh, these guys were really skilled. They had visiting speakers and they, they um, just spoke for sort of five, seven minutes to 13 year old boys' minds. The humor and the, just everything, the pitch, the level on Jesus. And uh, on the outside, for a while, I pretended that it was all rubbish, rubbish, rubbish. But I, every week, and I'd make some excuse as to why I'm, I might, I might go to see you next week. Maybe, you know, if I've got time. I wanted to be there. Because I was kind of hungry for this guy, Jesus. Never even thought about it. I thought he was kind of fairy tale, you know, Santa Claus and Jesus. We kind of dispense with both of them when we grow up. I was re-looking at this historical figure, this guy who lived, who taught, who said this stuff, died, rose again, this movement. Ooh. And I, I remember uh, just a guy giving a talk on, on a story that Jesus told about the great feast. Come, come to this, this banquet, which the guy explained was like heaven. You can live heaven on earth. Come. The invitation is for you. And I remember it's cliche. I know there was a room that had about 30, 40 guys it was as if he was speaking just to me. And I knew it wasn't him. It was God through him. I, I heard God say to me, come, come. And I don't know how I would have grown in my Christian faith through school because basically uh, we had a sort of chapel service. It was the dullest. They were the most uncomfortable seats. We sang the most dull hymns at one-tenth of the speed that I'm sure they were designed to be sung at. Someone burbled away from a pulpit that was about sort of 30 feet above contradiction, and that was meant to fit us for life. Um, someone once said, public school chapels fit you for life but ruin you for eternity. I think that's just about true. I, it's, pff, chapel. Oh. But, but the saving grace was, and this is, sorry, that was a rather long preamble into what I wanted to say. Which, there was a church, a local church, and they had a youth group, St. Peter's Hambledon. I'll give it a shout out today. And the church was just a little old church in the, in, out in the sticks, really. 
but it had this youth group. And by the grace of God, in sort of the year above me, year below me, and, and sort of my year, round about my contemporaries, there was just an extraordinary number. It wasn't a big youth group. There was probably about, I don't know, 15, 20. But there was an extraordinary number of amazing boys and girls, or young men, young women, as we were then, uh, that I kind of was privileged by the grace of God to be part of. And I don't, I don't want to sort of name drop, but one of them was Rick Thorpe, who's now the Bishop of Islington. He would, he would come in occasionally. Another, if you were here about a year ago, Philippa Stroud, who's now Baroness Stroud of Fulham and in, sits in the House of Lords, she was another. Uh, and there, most of those, my sort of contemporaries in that youth group, are engaged in some way, shape, or form in Christian ministry or Christian work, either full-time Christian work or or working like Philippa, for example, at the CSJ, as a Christian voice high up and significant in, in political spheres. I guess, actually, if I, as I look at the sort of roll call of, of people in that youth group, I'm, I'm kind of the only letdown. All, all the others, are, are, they're just sort of firing for God. And here's the thing, uh, and I'll be totally honest with you, again, this is why I was so privileged to sort of hang on the coattails, because all the blokes, I can't, I can't speak of them, but all the other blokes were, were good-looking guys. And all, I can say this, all the girls were unbelievably attractive. And we had a little reunion about 20 years after we kind of you know, disbanded and went our different ways. And we, we found ourselves at a, a kind of gathering, a reunion. And enough time had passed, and the, most of us, I think, were married or, or you know, we just moved on in different ways, that we were able to be honest with one another. And we all kind of fessed up that we, <laughs> that we all fancied the pants off everyone else. And I, I, there was one girl in particular, I, I, I armed and I said, I, should I ask her out or not? I don't know. And I didn't. And the reason why I didn't wasn't, I don't think, because I kind of lacked a bit of confidence or was frightened of a rebuttal. You know what it was? It was that fellowship, that friendship, was so precious that I didn't dare disrupt it by you know, going out maybe, and then the, that's a little bit exclusive, and then if we split up, oh, that ruins the whole thing. And I, I kind of thought that through and thought, I, I don't want to risk that. This, this friendship group, this fellowship is too precious to me. I, I don't want to risk ruining it. And it turned out, as we kind of shared this, and we kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of poured out our hearts, pretty much every, every other person thought exactly the same thing. They all fancied someone else. They all wanted to go out with someone else, and they didn't. And for about two or three years, that, that youth group, we, we'd met week on week, and friendships built and friendships developed, and we kind of discipled one another and encouraged one another, and we rejoiced with one another and cried with one another. We kind of did Christian life together. We built filio. We practiced agape. We kind of disciplined ourselves to recognize eros but keep eros at bay. And I... I I think the subsequent call into Christian ministry, to the, the, the fact that I, I kind of, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm a round peg in a round hole here. I, I'm kind of, or in this kind of ministry, I'm, I'm doing what I just feel God has called me to do. But so much of that I feel was formed, fashioned in me in those formative teenage years when I could have gone one way with the swagger. And God, through this amazing friendship group, held me in. Can I be honest? I, I would love, I would love to be able to say in, in a kind of really proud and, and, and kind of vain way to others, I'd love to say that I, I just play a small part in pastoring a church that is like that. 
please don't mishear me. I'm not saying don't go out with each other. Because Jesus is teaching and encouraging marriage and relationship. God ordained it in creation. But, but marriage aside, and in one sense, marriage aside, every single one of us can practice that kind of friendship, that kind of priority, that kind of focus and attention to one another's lives. Taking the eyes off myself in order that I can focus on and submit to one another, others, out of reverence for Christ. Because we will root and establish ourselves in Christ's love if we do that. Just very quickly, because he mentions divorce, so um, let me just take divorce. Verse 7, when the Pharisees come to Jesus, verse 7 of chapter 19, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife away, uh, give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replies, Moses permitted you to divorce. I don't know, there's not the kind of italics or parentheses. I didn't hear him speak those words, but I imagine he would have heard the Moses command. No, again, your hearts are hard. Moses didn't command that. He, he made allowance. Moses didn't want marriage to end in divorce. Moses knew, like Jesus knows. It says in Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce. I hate divorce, God says. That's not what Moses commanded, not what God wants, but he, interesting, high bar, God hates divorce, and yet, can, can you hear the grace, the mercy? God permits divorce. Jesus alludes to it here. Moses, God through Moses, the lawgiver, permitted you to, to divorce your wives because your heart's were hard. We, we're in a culture where divorce is, is akin to, it's kind of like just taking off a jacket, taking off a piece of clothing. But Jesus has taught in the, the context of anything he says about divorce is within the context of what God ordained in creation for every single human being to experience ultimately in our marriage with God through Jesus Christ. But, but in as far as we express it here on earth, that a man will leave his mother and father and, in the old language, cleave to his wife. And the two will become one flesh, two, one new being. God has joined this together. Let no man tear it asunder. Divorce is, is catastrophic. Divorce is awful. Divorce rips what God has put together. Divorce isn't like just taking off a jacket. Divorce is like an amputation. It's like taking off an arm or a leg. Now, you would be concerned if you went to a surgeon, one of our local hospitals, and you went in with a, you sort of stubbed your toe, and they said, well, yeah, better amputate. Oh, uh, I think there's one or two other measures first of all. Even if there's something seriously wrong with an arm or a leg, they'll do anything. A doctor or a surgeon will do anything to, to retrieve the arm. The, the, the amputation is the last, last resort. Do everything first to rescue, to save. I remember when uh, we were newly married, maybe a year or two, and we started, we were at um, Holy Trinity Brompton, where Nicky Gumbel, who's now the vicar, he was the curate there then. And I remember being very struck. I think one or others, probably me, flippantly said, oh, well, you know, if Joe did that, I'd divorce her. And he was like, ha, ha, ha. And Nicky, and he's not, Nicky, if you, I don't know if you know Nicky, he's really not that confrontational at all. But he kind of almost rounded on us and said, don't ever joke. 
don't ever joke about divorce. And actually, I felt quite chided. Oh, it's just a joke. But no, don't, don't even joke. Don't even put the little seed of the idea there. Don't let any, don't give the devil a foothold. Don't let anything germinate. You work at your marriage. You work at your marriage. You work at your marriage. You work at your, all your relationships and friendships. What is it? Well, I don't, don't particularly like you. You've kind of irked me a little bit, rubbing me out the wrong way, so I'm off. No, I'm going to discipline myself to work at this. What is this conjuring up in me? What can I, can I, what's, what's the roots, what's the foundation here that I need to pay attention to, Jesus is saying. So divorce is an absolute last resort. But here's the thing. If I'm understanding Jesus from this teaching, that just like amputation sometimes is necessary in order to save a life, if a leg has become so gangrenous or infected that actually it risks killing the whole body, then it's better to lose the leg to save the body. There are occasions when amputation is necessary in order to save a life. Jesus, it seems to me, is saying there are times when divorce is permissible in order that we, we rescue, we heal, and we begin the process of mending that which is broken. He mentions here, and in chapter 5, uh, adultery. The, the word actually is um, the Greek word pornea, from which we get pornography, sexual immorality or adultery, which is a clear violation of the marriage vows. In effect, Jesus is saying, well, if, if that has happened and, and the, the partner is not repentant, it's, uh, there's no uh, remorse, there's no turning around, there's no regret, there's no healing then, well, then the vows of, of two become one have... Uh, well, they've been broken because you become one with someone else. So when you vow till death us do part, well, it, we have to acknowledge that, that death has happened to those marriage vows. Paul talks about desertion in 1 Corinthians. I think I'd want to say too in the mix that where there is serious physical or emotional abuse, then the marriage vows have been violated, broken. And where that is the case, the marriage has ended, and divorce then, regrettably, Jesus would say, is permissible. This teaching about, just briefly, uh, that uh, if, uh, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, uh, then that woman commits adultery, I, I, th I think, is to be taken in the same spirit as uh, we heard last week. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Does he mean that literally? No, I mean, you can pluck your eye out if you want to, but that doesn't really deal with the issue. And here, it, 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 it seems to me that the real issue is a heart issue. It's not what we do to another person, what the impact is. He's just trying to wake us up. I'm going to cause someone else to commit adultery? It's that serious? Yes, it's that serious, Jesus said. W wake up to what I'm saying. We can't, Jesus is teaching, we can't use divorce to end a marriage. But if the marriage vows have been broken, if in the terms that he sets out, and if the marriage, therefore, has ended, divorce is permissible. And it seems to me, too, and commentators disagree on this, and, and um, uh, the, the church is, disagrees on this. I, I think I go with, I was reading um, Tom Wright in his commentary, that that, therefore, must mean that 
a divorce allows for at least the possibility of remarriage. Or, or to put it the other way around, if there's no possibility of a remarriage, then on what basis was it actually a divorce, an end of the first marriage? So if Jesus permits the possibility of divorce, it must therefore allow for the possibility at least of remarriage. And therein, and I'm going to finish now, and thank you for listening, I, I, I realize I've spoken too long. But therein, I think, is the seeds of hope in this tough teaching of Jesus. He, he sets the bar high, make no mistake, but there's hope there, isn't there? That, that something that God hates, interesting, by the way, uh, God hates divorce, Malachi 2, 16. But you know, in two other places in the Old Testament, God describes himself through the prophets as a divorcee. He describes how he divorces rebellious, reckless Judah in, in, in the, uh, with the whole exile. He, he likens it to a marriage that has ended, and he is the one who's been divorced. Or to Hosea, he said to the prophet Hosea, go and marry a prostitute so that you can see in, in, in that actual relationship, see what it is to marry someone who is unfaithful. That's how I feel. I feel like you always break covenant with me. God, God recognizes, he takes on himself the reality of divorce, of broken covenant, of, of unfaithfulness. So he hates divorce, but he's, he's in amongst it. And in amongst it, he offers hope. He's prepared to, to use as an instrument something he hates in order to bring something good out of something that is bad. Isn't that the basis of the whole of our worship? As we, as we sing to a crucified and risen God, Jesus who came, an innocent man, to take on our guilt. Don't you think God hates that? God hates that someone innocent is condemned to death. That goes against every fiber of his being, and yet he has wonderfully used that to affect our salvation. Good out of something bad. There is hope for every single one of us who, in some way, shape, or form, every single one has. We've fallen short of God's ideal in our whole relationships, romantic or otherwise. And, and God offers us hope while setting the high bar. So we continue to wrestle with this teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. We continue to wrestle with his, his, his vision for us. And his love. To God be the glory. Amen. I'm conscious I've kind of, it's a hospital pass to Pat and Lydia because it's time is getting on, and I know we'll want to kind of digest that a bit. There'll be some of us who will want to. Just, whoa, didn't think this was going to come up at church. <laughs> a few things you want to maybe wrestle with the Lord with. You want to come and take issue with me, maybe one to others. Uh, maybe you, you want to pray. You just love someone to maybe just put words in uh, or speak for you on your behalf, an arm around your shoulder. Um, I think it would be fitting if we did that within the context of worship. Pat, is that good? Uh, yeah, so why don't we stand together and just in these few minutes that remain... Let's, uh, let's just, each of us, determine to do business with God, as it were, as we engage with him and his teaching, his hope and desire for our lives.
Thank you, Tim. Um, we're going to sing one final song. That could have stirred a lot of stuff in, uh, in you. I know it has in me. Um, stuff you might want prayer for, uh, to stand with uh, and receive prayer from someone else or to pray with someone else about. So uh, prayer enabling team, if you can come forward. Life group leaders, um, guys, come ready to receive. It could be that you're here tonight and you've experienced the pain of uh, a family that's gone through divorce, perhaps your parents um, or those in your wider family. Uh, and you're still feeling the pain of that, the hurt, and that's fine. And that's something to pray into for God's healing to come to you. So if that's you, do please come forward, uh, receive prayer, turn to a friend, a neighbor, ask them to pray for you whatever it is. And let's all be praying that we would be people of faithfulness who commit to this pattern of love that Tim's so eloquently spoken of tonight.